The wheel of time turns and ages come and pass, leaving memories that become legend. Legend fades to myth and even myth is long forgotten when the age that gave it birth comes again. Welcome to Through the Glass Columns, a Wheel of Time read-along podcast. Each week, we will be reading, discussing, and digesting a small selection from Robert Jordan's fantasy opus. This quest is led by Tyler, a true Wheel of Time warrior. I have all stories, ages that were and that will be. And I'll be joined by Greg, a complete novice to the Wheel of Time. The Wheel of Time and the Wheel of a Man's Life turn alike without pity or mercy. Join us each week as we read the Wheel of Time in our own sweet time, traveling deeper and deeper through the glass columns. But what does that even mean? No, 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 no. no. You don't get to find out yet. (laughs) Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Through the Glass Columns, your weekly Wheel of Time read-along podcast. I, of course, am Tyler, your host who knows this series very well and is so, so close to the things that I've been telling you to wait for for so long. And I am joined by Greg, who is probably ready to just get to the stuff that I've been telling him to wait for for a year and a half at this point. Greg, how are you enjoying the early sections of The Shadow Rising? Uh, I'm definitely enjoying them. Uh, Very funny intro. Good to be here, uh, listeners. Uh, We've had some contact from listeners lately, and it was wonderful because it's like, wait, we're not just talking to each other. There are actual human beings out there uh, listening to us. So thank you to those that reached out and said uh, kind things. Um, I am like shocked. This was my Instagram post for our account this week that like we're somehow already 250 pages roughly into this book, which is just like, man, we're cruising and it will matter so little because there are so many more pages, (laughs) uh, to, to read in this book. But, uh, I'm excited. I've, uh, you know, um, I will just by way of introduction, say on my other podcast this week, I'm a co-host on the Long Take Review, which is a movie podcast. And uh, there was a very long discussion about how great Rosamund Pike was in the movie Saltburn. Mm. Uh, and she was nominated in our on-air uh, awards for um, for uh, Best Supporting Actress. And okay. so it was very funny to sit there being like, no, this is the wrong group of people I talk about uh, <laughs> Rosamund Pike with. Because, you know, even the weeks where we're, we're not talking about the show, I have been fully converted by the first season of the show. So I just picture her all the time. Yeah. And when you picture Moraine and think about Moraine all the time, and then they're like, but remember when she said this thing? It's like, oh, it's so weird. Uh, but yeah. Uh, it was great. And uh, she did not win the award. I will not spoil it for those that want to jump over and hear who we gave Best Supporting Actress of the Year uh, to. But uh, my heart was with Rosamund Pike because I think Saltburn is awesome, even though a lot of people hate it. So. I really loved that movie. Go see it if you like movies that <laughs> swing big and maybe connect. It's kind of up to the viewer on that one. Uh, We have three (laughs) chapters this week because we swung big. This was relatively long on the kind of page count side, but I'll be honest, on my like little stars that are a note to say something, I think this is a relatively things happened, not as much to say kind of chapter. We're, We're in the business of always predicting it will be a shorter, long episode and then always having it be somewhere between 50 minutes and an hour. But what was your thought on this week? Was it just like a moving the pieces around kind of set of chapters for you? Or did you feel like there was a little bit more meat on the bones than I'm giving it credit for? Uh, it felt like there was one big hunk of grisly meat on the bone, uh, just to really break your, your metaphor, uh, listeners, Tyler was taking a sip of water, which is now dribbling down his front. Um, so, uh, I will say, uh, I will get into it, but it felt like there was something really important that happened here. Uh, and that a lot of the rest of it was kind of just setting up that moment and, um, establishing this. Uh, but I wrote in my notes, uh, you must go to the Dagobah system uh, to seek yep. out Master Yoda, which uh, I will say is is the vibe I had from these chapters, uh, just to show my Empire Strikes Back of it all uh, to prove my nerd cred. So, uh, Tyler, I've now talked about two movies, but I'd like to talk about these books. So why don't you get us started with Chapter 11, What Lies Hidden? I absolutely will. In chapter 11, What Lies Hidden, Egwene looks at the ring that allows her to go into Teleron Riyadh and thinks about uh, basically how 
all of after the events that have happened of the past day, all of the Aes Sedai are exhausted. Only the people who would have died without healing have been able to get healing and kind of things are still in, you know, kind of a ramshackle mess. Um, the other girls are also there, Nynaeve and Elaine, as well as Avienda. And Egwene is studying a map of Panchico, trying to memorize it. Um, she is basically kind of lays out her plan. She is going to go into Teleron Riod and try to kind of find any signs of the Black Aja in Tanchico so they can have kind of evidence that they should go in that direction rather than the other options that they have in front of them. Um, and tonight she is going to try to go into Teleron Riod without using the ring. Um, and then there's kind of a brief discussion between the girls about whether Egwene should be going alone now that they have the ring that could allow either Elaine or Nynaeve to go into Teleron Riod but eventually Egwene kind of convinces them that she's the only one who knows the rules, knows how it works, and so she is going to go al alone. Um, we also get a little bit of a history lesson. We learn that they are going to be searching, first and foremost, the Panarch's palace, and we learn what a Panarch is. It's like the equal to a king, but not quite. Um, it's kind of like a balanced thing like we've seen in other places. Um, and then at this point, Egwene falls asleep, and it turns out, hey, she can go to Teleron Riod even without the ring. Um, we learn a couple of interesting interesting things about the rules there. For example, her clothing is constantly shifting, and every time that she has kind of a stray thought, she's wearing something else. Um, at this point, she looks around, and first, she sees a number of bones and skeletons. Um, we can talk through what we think they are and whether we kind of identified what the animals were. She also sees a couple of other important-seeming things, um, a couple of bracelets of dark metal, which she associates with pain, a three-pointed star that she associates with pride and vanity, and also a statue of a woman that, holding a crystal sphere that seems to be broken and when she tries to use it, it causes her significant pain. Um, at this point, she leaves, she searches a little bit and then all of a sudden, without realizing how or why, she is suddenly in the desert. It is warm, and she's an, she sees an Aiel woman dressed as a maiden of the spear. She then forces herself to jump back to the palace. She wonders why birds and dogs are in Teleron Riode, even though other animals aren't. And then as she's walking around the city again, she thinks that she's kind of proud of herself for thinking like a wise one. And then once again, she is back in the desert. Um, she is kind of briefly confronted by this Aiel woman who is able to hold her in place and then chastises her for wearing the Cadden sore, what the maidens of the spear wear, and so she kind of makes all of her clothing disappear. Egwene is eventually able to distract her by channeling, and she makes herself vanish and go back to Tanchico, but not before catching a glimpse of what she thinks is Birgitta standing behind the Aiel. Um, finally, she gets back to Tanchico, decides that, wait a minute, it's a dream, I can fly, flies around, tries to find some sign of the Black Aja. She cannot, but when she lands, the Aiel is there again. She grounds her, keeps her on the ground, and then tells her that she is inexperienced, she needs to learn. Egwene introduces herself as being an Aes Sedai of the Green Aja. The woman introduces herself as an Aiel Amis, who is a wise one, and tells her that she must go to Cold Rock's Hold to be trained. And then at this point, Egwene seemingly wakes without wanting to. And that is the end of the chapter. That is a big, long chunk of text. But as you say, it's all kind of building towards a revelation. I'm curious what your thoughts are on the section of the chapter before it, because you could either take that as really long or lots of interesting kind of small details sprinkled throughout. What stood out to you or what got you through those first like five, ten pages of this chapter? Uh, just a will for something to happen. Thanks. Uh, no. <laughs> I'm going to keep making jokes only while you're drinking water. Um, so I would say as I think about this chapter and, and yeah, I do think it all builds to the the introduction of a miss. If somehow uh, was someone was unclear on what I was referencing before with Empire Strikes Back. Um, but I will say to to engage your question, I think what struck me the most of the early part of the chapter is the plan is actually pretty clever, right? Mm -hmm. Like they have to make this hard decision. And so they realize they do have kind of essentially a surveillance method mm -hmm. that they could go peek in and, and try to help make the decision a little bit better. So, um, you know, uh, that's pretty sophisticated and pretty smart. And, and yeah. I don't just mean that for these characters, I actually mean it in like terms of fantasy books. Usually mm -hmm. our characters aren't that smart in a fantasy book. They'll just rush in because really what the author is trying to do is get you to the action. So to have yeah. them do this kind of 
uh, different strategy, uh, obviously serves the narrative in a different way, but, um, that was, that was pretty engaging and fun. Um, am I right to read the situation with the ring as Egwene's powers have grown? So while the ring could still help her, she kind of doesn't need it anymore. She's, I, I don't know if it's that she's gained ring, gained power from the ring or just learned by practice, but, yeah. um, she's kind of moved beyond it essentially. I think that sounds about right. The way that I would read this is kind of similar to the way that we've been reading Rand and channeling in the early part of this book, right? I don't know whether she would be able to enter Teleron Riod every time. It might be like spotty or only work in certain situations. She's still kind of feeling her way around with these powers. But I think it's absolutely right to say in the previous book, she desperately needed the ring or else she would not have been in Teleron Riod regularly. Now she does not need it. That is a clear kind of upgrade. And um, I think it's it's kind of interesting in the early part of the chapter, they kind of interrogate how confident Egwene is in her growing powers, where she feels confident enough to say, I'm the one who should be doing this. I know the rules. I can do it. But it's very clear, I think, that as she is arguing against someone else coming with her using the ring, that partially she's doing that so that the other girls don't realize that she's kind of faking it till she makes it in Teleron Riode. She is not quite the expert that she's making herself out to be. And so I think that contrast between leveled up but also still well behind where she feels like she maybe should be is really kind of great place for a character who's about to be in search of a teacher. Uh, you need a teacher. Uh, yes, and I, I do think that this replicates dynamics we've seen with Egwene before. And, you know, mm -hmm. I kind of put her in the Hermione honor student camp where she really wants to be the best at what she is doing and what could be more interesting except keep showing her hitting the limits of what she knows and being yeah. bested by somebody else. And so I kind of take this moment as she has surpassed Nynaeve, that that relationship is touched upon here in the early part of the chapter a little. Mm -hmm. It seems rocky, but better would be my kind of encapsulation of it. Um, yeah. And so she has kind of definitively won by having this kind of special power that Nynaeve doesn't. Um, so it seems like, yeah, let's now let's humble her with a different figure entirely. Yeah, no. And I think that makes a lot of sense. The only other thing kind of before we go into the dream that I had to note was Avienda is continuing to get a lot more kind of of the spotlight generally in her direction than I think I maybe would have expected as a first time reader. I don't have much else to say about that, but uh, maybe this is a now question. Maybe this is a next chapter question. Feel free to punt if you need to. But what is your feel on Avienda so far? She's been kind of in the background of a lot of scenes. I'm wondering whether you feel like you're getting to know her at all or whether it's just a name that has now been repeated enough that you kind of know who she is. Well, there is something going on where at the end of the last book, the Aiel felt so significant and their arrival and their naming as the people of the dragon all felt very significant. And we've mm -hmm. seen that piece kind of undone a little bit here, not fully retconned, but at least yeah. made a little less certain. And so there's a way in which to me, all the Aiel are, kind of feeling like white noise. Like they're always mm. present in the room, listening, watching. And so I I think it is fair to say that in the second chapter, she becomes a bit more of a character and we get to get a sense of her. Um, but I am starting to feel like, um, you know, we really need them to stand apart or get yeah. spotlit more so that it's not just, there are also some Aiel here. I also, this this is just me being dumb and confessing, confessing this to the listeners. For some reason in my head, I think I connect the Aiel with like the frost giants in Marvel. So I always think of them as a little blue and I'm like picturing like a blue lady in the background. I'm like, wait, they're not blue. They're just like <laughs> Irish essentially, right? They're, they're redheaded. They're taller, right? Yeah. And freckly is essentially all we know of what they look like more or less yeah they i mean they 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 dress very kind of like nomadic desert culturey culturey but in mm. terms of like actual physical markings yeah i think you're exactly right um i have nothing else to say about that i just love me some avienda so had to do a temperature check um let's jump into the dream the first thing that Egwene sees are a bunch of skeletons 
I immediately identified what I think they are, but I'm curious whether you have any notes on what you thought the skeletons were before I give my hypotheses. Um, this is such a stupid answer to a nice question. Uh, there's a mall near where I live, and they had, I forget what this store is called. It, it was definitely like trying to be Jay Peterman or something, but it was like, cool oddities inside this is the north shore plaza in massachusetts if people are, are from the general area and every i've never gone in but every time i walk by they have a giant bear skeleton in the window with a price tag of like five thousand dollars and i don't even think it's a prehistoric bear but i will say that is all i could think of was the awesome. giant bear at the north shore mall you know a bear that lived its life out in the woods and then you know got assembled with some wire and stuck in a mall for sale you yep. inevitably sit there until the store goes out of business. Just the the real summation of late stage capitalism to me. <laughs> uh, so, um, so I was thinking kind of bearish. I think mm -hmm. there you, in your summary you didn't mention she encounters a boar in yep. the waste and then comes back and the skeleton seems more boarish than bearish. Okay. And yeah. In the way she described it, so I was stuck more on not what is this thing, but did it change? So what are what's your working hypothesis? Uh, she gave us a skull that she first thinks had four eyes, and then realizes two of them must be for horns. I immediately jumped to an elephant because that is the skull that I have had that reaction to. Um, she talks about a uh, skeleton that looks long and thin, but its head is almost up to the ceiling. And that's got to be either a giraffe or a brontosaurus, depending on how far back she's going. And then there was one that I think was I think this is the one you're describing that one time she described it as being like a bear. And then the next time is being more like a boar. And both times she highlights how big its teeth are. My initial thought was saber-toothed tiger, but I think you're right. When she starts saying boar, I immediately jump to maybe like hippopotamus instead. But mm. skeletons, it's fun. We also have three other objects that she looks at. Um, some bracelets that she thinks give her the feeling of pain. A three-pointed star that she thinks is of an odd material that is chipped but doesn't seem to be uh, rusting or degrading at all. And when she looks at that, she thinks of vanity. Um, and then there is also the woman holding the crystal sphere that she says is broken. And when she tries to use it, it causes her pain. Did any of those items stand out to you? Do you have any thoughts or theories about any of them? Um, well, question. just, uh, just to note that I did like, this just felt like a real world human museum. Like if the mm -hmm. reveal on this is that like she had transported to the New York museum of natural history or something like I believe it. Cause it, it yeah. felt that way. So I want to bracket that. Um, and then your description just now and in the book, it made it feel like these are literal objects, but also they are like dream objects, right? And so, you know, in a dream, I am still anxious about an exam from high school, even though I'm not really anxious about that object. So like, it made me kind of question, what are these objects and, and what do they have? So uh, to take them in order, the the bracelets made me wonder about the Sean Chan the you know there was the neck collar but that obviously would be a great source of pain for for Egwene and and wondered if that was somehow related either literally or like it's a way to control uh Aes Sedai perhaps mm -hmm. the um the uh three-pointed thing I thought literally nothing about uh and then the woman with the crystal which had the property of drawing her in Egwene was ready yeah. to grab it and figure it out without anything the main thing that came to mind is I thought of the statue that yep. was outside of Carahane. Uh it, that one? Yeah, that's correct. Carian, but yes. Kyrian. Yes, yes. Kyrian. Uh, but it made me remember, like, oh yeah, there was a giant statue in the ground. And one I think it was the current leader in the game was excavating it but people thought it was a bad idea that's correct there was also a hint that there would be potentially one on the other side of the continent from that one that is accurate what we saw in kyrian was a man holding aloft a crystal sphere what uh and then we also heard that in one of the sea folk isles there is a woman holding a sphere of crystal aloft that is also a massive statue
Nice. So uh, I'm not really paying attention to what you say in response to me, but I, I'm hearing you nailed it, Greg. You nailed it. So fill me in on the middle one. Number one, <laughs> you nailed it. Number three, <laughs> you nailed it. Number two is my single favorite piece of Robert Jordan bringing the real world into the wheel of time. Mm. It is a plastic three-pointed star that reeks of vanity. It's a Mercedes-Benz hood ornament. Oh, all right. All right. It's, I'll take it. There is nothing Very else cool. there. Very That's cool. just a fun little reference. Um, once <laughs> she leaves, I want to agree with what you said earlier. The girls have this magnificent plan. We are going to go into Teleron Riyad. We are going to find evidence that the Black Aja is in Tanchico. See if we can kind of nail this down. That is a great skeleton of a plan. And then their execution is absolutely horrific. Egwene wanders around in circles in the city of Tanchico, hoping that something makes her think of the Black Aja. It's it's a great plan with no execution whatsoever. I don't have anything else to say other than these 17-year-olds can't make a plan to save their lives. But do you have anything before we get to Amis to say about her strategy in, in the world of dreams? Um... Well, I guess this is more a compliment to Robert Jordan that it did feel, for better or worse, like dreams do. Like you have mm. that thing. I, I, yeah. this is I'm sure an old wives' tale, but I was always told that when you're in a dream and the whole setting suddenly changes, it's because you rolled over in the real world. So like when you're in your house and then you rolled over and then you're suddenly like at your school or whatever. I'm sure that's all just nonsense because who could possibly have ever tracked that uh, at all? But um, it had that feel to it that um, like, you know, that this is a kind of lucid dreaming. And yeah. yet whenever I've seen lucid dreaming represented, it's usually like a loose control, right? Mm -hmm. It's not like I can literally do whatever I want. It's like you can have a will and a direction, but then you kind of slip out of it and then have to remind yourself. And so yeah. it felt a lot like that. And that's that's how I took it, even though um, agreed that it doesn't make for an easy plan to follow if that's the way you're controlling it. Yeah, I really liked the version of that. I think it's the second time that Egwene ends up in the waste. She literally kind of has a stray thought about a wise one and then immediately ends up where she was before in the Aiel waste. And I think that's exactly what you're describing, that idea that she is in control. But if she is not in control of herself, then she's just going to end up wherever her thoughts just happen to take her. Um, and then we get a very interesting version of that, which is, I don't know whether it's Amis or Amis or however we're going to pronounce her name. She hasn't been on the television show yet. Uh, but she, she seems to be letting her kind of thoughts and memories take her, right? She is intentionally living a memory, more or less, seems to be what we piece together over the course of this chapter once we kind of see several kind of uh, views of it. What is your take on this new character, her introduction, and just the fact that she seems to be kind of a a powerful figure who, who does want to go back and relive her wild days is, is the introduction we seem to get. <laughs> Um, certainly seems like, uh, if not more powerful than everybody we've met, a different kind of power than everybody we've met. Um, mm -hmm. it feels like she is very powerful, but in a very specific way. Right. Yeah. Um, and we'll save some of those hints for next chapter, but it seems like the power set is almost, uh, you know, omnipotent, but only in the dream realm, meaning she yeah. can't uh, do too much outside of the the Teleron Riode. Mm -hmm. Sure. Uh, so uh, I do think that's an interesting constraint. I'm excited. Um, you know, I, I, I don't know how much we have to not spoil the next chapter, but it was exciting to kind of take a new complication and to break Egwene off in a new direction. And it seems yeah. like that's that's what we have here. And so it makes me think this is going to be a mentor. I feel like Egwene is called there, but we're definitely going to get the last Jedi or fight club, if you prefer it, where like, no, I'm not going to teach you. Uh, yeah. And uh, like, it feels like a samurai plot, which is what both of those things are paying homage to, um, yeah. you know, so it seems fun to me.
Yeah, no, I think that's a really good read is this is it. And I think it's right to kind of put it into a genre place, right? It feels like when Egwene jumps between the Tanchico dream and the Aiel dream, there's just a very different kind of tone to what is going on. And it's also worth noting, this is kind of our first hint that Egwene has somewhere to go that might not be the title of the next chapter, Tanchico or the Tower. And so that kind of shift i think is really really interesting um in that there were two moments that i kind of picked out as being kind of maybe worth zeroing in on as she is interacting with amos um one is that it seems like the wise one her the thing that gets uh Egwene out of trouble is when she channels and she kind of has an immediate reaction to it and so uh and then later on in the chapter she actually refers to Egwene as stronger than she expected presumably in the tower uh or i'm sorry in the power um the other thing that i noted is Egwene sees what she thinks is Brigitte behind the wise one and that is just an interesting odd detail that gets thrown in and then never really gets brought back up the rest of the chapter mm. um, did either of those kind of set off any alarm bells for you what what was your thinking kind of as you were working through the big picture stuff of these little details uh second one definitely didn't even hit my ra radar uh and please cool. don't start a quiz with who Bergita is uh all i was doing in my head was singing and her akita Bergita, which is not even the right lyric from rent but uh we'll pretend in my head that it is uh for the um, record Bergita uh, is uh the hero of the horn who used her bow and arrow and was brought back in the end of the second book continue all right uh the first one it did feel very much like i am right to remember that it was nynaeve who channeled inside of the test to become an accepted yes that's correct or was that a gwayne so it actually. felt very similar okay so it felt similar to that which is you are able to break the rules of this place and that's weird yeah. this doesn't seem like a transgression like she didn't totally expect it it was just oh you're more advanced than you are right yeah um so uh, that felt um, like a reason why you would be their teacher, right? You would volunteer yeah. for that. Uh, I just want to note, um, you mentioned it. The The other thing that felt dreamlike was the way they can control their clothing and yeah. and so on. And um, the, then, the, you know, Robert Jordan, if he can throw you a visual of one of his female characters naked, he'll just do it mm -hmm. because he can, it, it, it seems. Um, and so in those moments, though, um, I was recalling this is such a stupid thing to bring up, but um, there's a new set of short stories about the Star Wars movie Return of the Jedi. And a really good author did a whole story kind of based on the fact that when the newest version of Anakin's Force Ghost shows up, he's wearing an outfit that doesn't make any sense. Uh, it's an <laughs> outfit Anakin never wore. And God love him, this author developed a great story about getting to choose what clothes you come back in and as, wow. when you're a force ghost. Because it's not like Hayden Christensen just wandered off set from episode three. It's a different robe. Right. And, and I was like, dude, I've watched this movie so many times and never even clocked that, yeah. <laughs> that he's not wearing the, the right robe. So a, a very funny thing uh, that's not really that related, but uh, did enhance that kind of dreamlike quality. Yeah. Uh, it actually, and it also feels like the Matrix, right? Where, you know, mm. I believe they call it your residual self-image where you get to kind of set what you're wearing and and so on. So, uh, you know, yeah. it's, it's fun. It makes the world feel real. And then I really liked the kind of, on that then that even though Egwene is normally in charge of her clothing that Amos seems to have the ability to be like no I can dictate what you are wearing and so that kind of yeah. gives us some interesting questions about what do we do with that kind of power set next um, I have little else to say about this chapter because Egwene wakes up abruptly any last thoughts before we dive into chapter 12 no excellent Let's do it. Chapter 12, Tanchico or the Tower. Uh, Elaine is relieved when Egwene wakes up. She says that she they 
uh, she had difficulty waking her and they were even kind of shaking her before she came awake. Um, Egwene basically tells them about Amos and every, uh, you know, everything that happened. Uh, Avienda knows her as a wise one uh, who gave up the spears and was once a maiden of the spear. Um, she says that Ruark is married to Amos and also another woman. And this causes some significant consternation between the two rivers folks and also caused Elaine to think about the possibility of her potentially having Rand and another wife, which she seems very odd and kind of upset about, especially when she thinks that it could potentially be Barrelane. Um, she then considers whether uh, the statement that there was evil in Tanchico is relevant to their decision of where to go. Um, and she concludes that Egwene needs to go to the Aiel Waste to learn but the others can continue to go on. And in particular, they will be able to continue to communicate with her using the Teleron Riod ring. And so as a result, they kind of agree they are going to need to split up at this point. Um, Moraine then enters the room, informing them that both, both of the Black Aja have been killed, uh, likely by either Greymen or, as she suggests, maybe even something more powerful. Um, and Moraine basically says that... Um, or she raises the question of whether or not they can read into the killings that the black Aja being killed does that suggest they were telling the truth or that they were lying and they kind of get kind of wrapped up in this kind of web for a little bit um eventually um avienda expresses her desire not to go with Egwene, but instead to travel with the other girls but moraine says that she has a letter from a number of wise ones insisting that avienda is ordered to join them at roydian um or roydian or i'm not sure how that last syllable is pronounced, but it's definitely Roy in the first one, which is super annoying. <laughs> um, and Moraine uh, points out that in the letter, um, Avienda is told that she must go despite all of the other things going on in her life. Avienda almost seems pouty about this and uh, insists that she can go uh, wherever she chooses. Um, but it's clear that Moraine has told Ruark and Ruark is going to make Avienda go to Roydian. Um, Moraine then says that she is not going to talk any more about it. Um, and Egwene is going to go with Avienda to Roydian and the girls can get to what uh, Moraine suggests is a sea folk ship that is bound for Tanchico and that the rest of them will know what Rand intends to do the next day. This is just straight up a move the pieces around chapter as far as I'm concerned. We got all the interesting information in the previous chapter and now our characters synthesize it and decide what the plan is. To me, the most interesting thing about this chapter is that it is called Tanchico or the Tower and I don't think there is ever one good argument made for going to the <laughs> Tower. What did you think about this chapter overall? Yeah, I mean, I, I think... Well, I, I wanted to know, it actually was a pretty subtle perspective shift. I think switching yeah. from a Gwaine to a lane was, was the right call, but I kind of second-guessed it a couple pages in. I'm like, wait, did we switch to a lane? And, and confirmed we had basically right now when I said that out loud and you nodded. Yeah. Um, so uh, that was that was an interesting move and to be a little bit more in Elaine's uh, perspective as she has different views on these issues and seems to just, you know, fall a little bit into the stereotype of, but what about my boyfriend? Yeah. Um, and so, uh, you know, that is not my favorite part of her character. Um, I guess, well, now I don't want to cross the streams. Maybe we've just met Elaine in some kind of television program that may or may not be based on this. So I'm kind of interested to see how they'll they'll update that character as the TV yeah. show often does some updating and some modernization of, of different characters. Well, and this is um, something... My if I can jump in just really nope, quickly, nope. Uh, when you were talking about kind of the subtle transition between the two characters, I think that actually says something about Elaine. I think of all of the characters that we've met so far, she is the one who pays the most attention to her friend's feelings. And so I think we get a lot more narration about what Egwene is going through in Elaine's chapters than we get narration about what like Ig Elaine is going through in Egwene's chapters, right? If we're looking at like, the selfishness pyramid. I can guarantee you Moraine is on top of that pyramid and Nynaeve slightly <laughs> below her, but Elaine is at the bottom of that pyramid. She seems to kind of give us a lot more detail about others in her chapters, and I just wanted to highlight, I think that's really well done by Robert Jordan to kind of compliment what you were saying. Uh, I like that point, and I like that as a trait of Elaine because it could just be this is a 
person with good emotional health. But you know what would be really good for like diplomacy and royal interactions is reading people and understanding their motivations and their emotions. So, uh, so uh, very cool if that is both a, a kind of character note and a a plot device. Uh, I think which it seems fair to call it both. Um, I was just going to transition and say the main centerpiece of my note is just like we're really unpacking the Dreamwalkers here. I said Dreamwalkers have entered the chat. So we get a download on um, who a miss is, what her power sets are. And I think most interestingly that they are able to essentially foresee or foretell what's where people are going to be or what they're going to do. And yeah. that to me is not something exactly that we've seen out of Tello Rodriode, but it feels like you could make that connection pretty easily. That doesn't feel like that much of a stretch. Yeah, we've we've had these interesting kind of flashes from Egwene where I don't think at any point when she's in Teleron Riode has she seen a vision, but we've also had her kind of like have a number of dreams and she thinks of some of them as being important and other ones not. And so it's it almost feels like a kind of a parallel power at this point, right? It's not actually done in Teleron Riode, but it seems like people who can walk in the dream can also do this kind of like predictive foretelly thing um from my perspective this just kind of deepens the really interesting thing robert jordan does about like what is fate in a world where you can have so many people can foretell the future but i don't have any like particular notes on that here um the moment that really stood out to me in the early section is avienda just being like oh yeah lots of people have multiple multiple wives aren't you aware of this and it it feels weirdly progressive for Robert Jordan to just be like, yeah, there's a culture that's just totally cool with thruples. No big deal. <laughs> yeah. And well, and this also makes me think of the green Aja in the yeah. television show are kind of presented as polyamorous in that, that way potentially. Um, and Egwene just identified herself as a green Aja, which you mentioned in your summary um, yeah. last chapter, but we didn't really bump on it. But is that her foreseeing something about herself? Is it her just kind of guessing where she's leaning now? Um, again, I think that's another interesting piece uh, of yeah. the, is this real life or is this the dream realm kind of anyway? Um, so that all is interesting. I do like that um, Elaine was immediately like, well, but not with Berlaine. Like, no, not her. Like, yeah. I'm not into her. Uh, so, um, yeah, I don't know that I have that much deeper to go with, but it was kind of a fun character beat to see Elaine immediately be like, am I destined for a, a thruple? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, the only other kind of character moment that I really bumped on in this chapter is Avienda. I think in the previous chapter, we noted like Avienda is a name that's showing up, but she's always felt like she's in the background for the most part. In this chapter, there is a letter about her and she does not like it. It is very clear that she is running, kicking and screaming from Roydeon and whatever her destiny is there that the wise ones have in store for her. And having a character who just does not want to go where she is being told to go is a really interesting kind of first real beat for that character to get. Um, what, what did you pick up on? What did you find of interest here? What's your take on Avienda, which I realized is a question I asked you 15 minutes ago, but answer it again, Greg. I was mostly napping in between anyway. Uh, I, I would say she felt exactly like another teenager, right? I'm not yeah. positive what her age is, but um, if not a literal teenager, like the equivalent where it's like, I'm out on my own and independent and I can make up my own mind. You can't tell me what to do. Um, and that felt like a good person to, you know, add into this mix of people who have basically constantly been worried about where they're foretold to be or what they're foretold to do. Yeah. Um, so I liked that. It felt good. I liked the, that she wasn't uh, prepared to be bossed around. And I want to just double check this place they're going to. They mention a lot of rock columns. They yep. don't mention glass columns. That is correct. But I was kind of bumping because I know we're <laughs> we're getting close. And yep. I was like, are they all rock? Could there be some other columns there? Let's talk about the columns. But the columns were clearly not the focus of the visions of this place or the fight about whether they should go there or not. 
If you uh, look at the original cover, which I think we'll probably have a ill-advised discussion on in, you know, a month or something, um, there's actually a really kind of beautiful depiction of what like a desert with just random pillars of stone sticking out of it would look like. And it's actually a really cool image that I kind of never put together because of the way that I think of books. I don't picture them, but like stone pillars is actually a much more more beautiful image than I would have anticipated. And that is the way that I am artfully dodging any mention of glass columns. Mm, fine. But look at our beautiful new artwork that has a portal stone that is a kind of column. I don't know that we've <laughs> shouted it out, but that took all of my Photoshop skills. So if you are a listener looking at that new art and you're saying, I could do better, I bet you're right. But know that that was hours and hours of my Photoshop skills. I just want to point out, I love that icon. 90% because it's a really <laughs> wonderful icon and 10% because every time I see it, I think that the icon for our television show is the Wu-Tang symbol every time. <laughs> uh, I'm glad we got that on air because you've already used that on text message, but it had not made it to air. So good on that. <laughs> um, well, and so I guess this just, I want to note my second bullet point is that all of this just feels like we're getting a little taste of the politics of the IEL. Yeah. We get that they can be told to do things but they can't be forced to do them so it does appear that this does end up being avienda's choice even if it doesn't feel like she gets a choice in the matter yeah and i think that that's a really uh, that's a really interesting parallel that i want to draw between moraine and the wise ones in this chapter because I, I don't know until we met um, Amis, or however we're going to pronounce it, I don't know whether we would have, I would have thought the wise ones of the Aiel are kind of the corollary to the Aes Sedai, but once you start to see them, I don't want to use the word manipulating, but I'm gonna, right? Once you see them manipulating people in the way that the wise ones do via Moraine in this chapter, it's really hard to kind of see them in any way other than the way that we've been talking about Moraine and the Merlin and, you know, all of these kind of major forces who they don't force you to go somewhere, but they just nudge you in the direction until you're doing exactly what they want. Yeah, certainly feels very similar. I like nudge. I like your use of nudge there. <laughs> um, and, you know, again, that makes me think kind of deep mythological that when you have characters that can see the future, I mean, obviously the the real answer here is Cassandra from ancient Greeks. Uh, you know, the doom of those types of characters is usually to say what's going to happen. And that causes people to do yeah. that thing eventually. Right. And so, in that kind of mythological structure to think about just nudging as a way to avoid that, right? Like mm, just pushing yeah. here and there to try to avoid something that seems to feel right and make sense. Um, it makes me, I, I kind of defaulted to assuming they were kind of benevolent, even though the reason I'm doing so is because like you just said, they are being manipulative and underhanded, just like the Aes Sedai. Right. So it's, it's funny that that puts them in the good column, even though that is negative behavior. Yeah, and I think I really like that kind of Cassandra idea because to some degree, Moraine does exactly what you're describing later on in the chapter, right? She just drops a kind of seemingly minor detail, and the way that she does it, I think, kind of sets the the path for the characters, right? At the end of the chapter, she's like, oh, you're going to Tanchico. Awesome. There happens to be a, win a sea folk ship that is leaving for Tanchico tomorrow. And I don't know what Moraine's relationship to the ship is, but I can guarantee you that she didn't randomly drop the detail of how the girls could get where they're going without having some sort of reason for doing so. And I think that's exactly what mm. you're describing, right? It's not the same like foretelling yeah. sort of thing, but it's that idea of like, I'm just going to put the detail in there and you're going to get drawn to it because that's what people do. Yeah. So, well, and Spoiler, when we say uh, chapter titles for next week, I think we're really on the precipice of the final, like everybody's headed out in their own direction. And this part you're describing is a piece of that. And the thing I'm having trouble quite figuring out is where Moraine's going. And so yeah. you're right that she drops in this detail and sets them in their direction. Could easily be like, 
hey, I'll come along. But clearly that's not what any of them want. There's still that tension there. I think she probably needs to stick with Rand is probably the direction she's going. Um, But, you know, this is kind of a big deal that they all just kind of agree that Egwene will go on her own or with Avienda in a totally different direction, like the opposite compass direction from them, um, seemingly into a pretty dangerous space, um, though they're all not that worried about her, which I don't know. That makes me uneasy. Yeah, I think to some degree, this is the first chapter that it has felt like we are not going to be playing in the same groups that we've been playing in before, right? Um, in the previous book, it was like, okay, we've got like the Matt cluster, we've got the Perrin cluster, we've got the, you know, the girls, and we were kind of figuring out where each of them were going. I think this is the first time that we've started to see like, oh, maybe we're going to be kind of breaking up those groups or intermingling between them instead of kind of keeping them in the same groups going forward. And all I have to say to that is, yay, more kind of options for how to play this game out is is fun. I'm excited to see people going in different directions. I am so deep in my current office rewatch that I'm in the episodes that nobody should actually ever watch, let alone rewatch. But I will say I hit one where Jim had to take Stanley and Phyllis out to lunch. And that's what it was. It's like, oh. These three have never had a plot. Like, let's take yep. Jim out of the Dwight Pam desk cluster and put him in the other desk cluster. And uh, yeah, I'm I'm here for it. I, I think that's good, right? And yeah. I think it, I liken it to sitcoms because good ensembles are really good. I mean, Parks and Rec yeah. is my favorite example of that. Whatever two characters they put in a plot line will work and yeah. they can just shuffle them around endlessly because they have a nice deep bench on that show. So yeah, I'm here for it. I'm here to see what the, how the dynamics change and and as much as uh, I think Elaine has been the kind of bridge between Egwene and Nynaeve when they have tension, I'm not convinced it will be smooth sailing with Nynaeve and, and Elaine together. Yeah, I wouldn't be convinced it would be smooth sailing with Nynaeve and anyone. I love that character, <laughs> but in part because she doesn't get along with humans. Any last thoughts on Chapter 12 before we jump on to Chapter 13? Uh, my last just genius note here is um i wrote down some lyrics from les mis because you know i think it's the end of act one of les mis they all start saying one day more and then all the characters come in and it's like we've been singing one day more for like four chapters like tomorrow's (laughs) the day tomorrow it'll all be clear tomorrow and i'm like yep i i want my act break i want to go grab my smoke and then i'm going to come in and see this plot actually get going the end of the first act is when i should have walked out of the tom hooper version of les mis i did Uh not enjoy that movie Chapter 13. Incorrect. It was when Russell Crowe started singing that we all should have walked out of the Tom. (laughs) It it was when Anne Hathaway's character died. That's the line in the sand for all of us. Chapter 13. Rumors. Matt sits alone in a seedy bar. He's thinking that the commoners of of the city don't know what happened in the stone. And then he recalls his experience, first with killing a gray man who was sent after him, and then with facing down a murder rail who said that he was going to kill him for being the horn sounder. But then he was saved by Trollocs and was very confused about what was going on. Um, Matt finds himself sketching with some wine on the uh, table near him, and he has sketched an open door on the table. Um, He overhears someone saying that Loghain was a better dragon than Rand, which is just a funny debate to be overhearing. And then he hears someone mentions the two rivers and goes to ask about it and hears that there are white cloaks in the two rivers who are supposedly hunting the dragon reborn, but also looking for a man with yellow eyes. Matt confirms that there is not a third person on that list. Luckily for him, there is not. And then as Matt walks away, there's debate about whether Matt himself is actually a lord, and he walks to the stone where he sees Perrin hacking and assumes that Perrin has heard the same rumor he just did. Apparently he did, and he told Rand. Rand uh, basically started rambling, saying things like he said he'd do it, and he needs to do what they don't expect. Um, Matt says that he tries, he kind of agrees, says I need to go along, but he feels like there is something pulling him in another direction. Um, Perrin says that it's almost certainly Tavir, 
Kieran, but he thinks that all of this is because of him, and so he needs to go to the two rivers to protect his family. Um, Matt physically can't bring himself to say that he wants to go, um, and then basically uh, they kind of agree that they're going to have to go in different directions. Karen tells Matt that he wants him to be sent pretty girls and fools who want to gamble, which is just a wonderful blessing to send to anyone. <laughs> and then Matt kind of is making his way out after asking Karen to look after his family. Um, Matt then sees Berylaine and grins and flirts with her. She ignores him at first, then sizes him up and decides that he is too much like her and walks away. At this point, Matt gives an enormous tip to one of the people who is working in the stone and thinks he is a fool, but he's a fool who needs to figure out what he's going to do end of chapter that one was quick but fun i always like when i'm in matt's head are you kind of coming to agree with me or are you getting annoyed by how often i say that even though you don't love matt no i i think i i had fun here i mean uh, i am a broken record at every matt chapter it's like i'm only playing the game of who's driving matt and when is matt in control of his actions and when he, is he not and i think there are a few guesses here but um Fun, engaging, but this is definitely the one tonight I have the least notes for. It's like, yeah. you know, I think we all knew the Two Rivers was in danger, so it's not really a revelation that that there's kind of confirmation that mm -hmm. this this is happening. Um, and so, you know, I guess probably the most interesting bit for me, and maybe it comes earliest in your notes, so it's worth noting, is that they are specifically hunting him down because he blew the horn. Now, yeah. by my memory, the horn is rightfully his until he's dead and then somebody else can blow it and that is use the power. Is that correct? Okay. Uh, so that seems important. And then that leads to like, well, who's protecting him and who's not seems to be like, well, who wants to just take the horn for themselves and who wants to manipulate him would be my guess. Yeah, I think to me, the most fun part about that section is just watching Matt figure out all of the things that we saw Rand and uh, Lanfear discuss in the previous chapter, right? Like, Rand is like, they're coming after me. Oh, no, now there are Trollocs defending me. And seeing that from Rand's or seeing that from Matt's perspective with no context whatsoever just makes it seem so much like more chaotic in a way that I think just just really worked for me. But I, I think you're right. The only real kind of detail to pull out and say, like, this is the thing to remember going forward. They are after Matt and they are doing it specifically because they know that he is the horn sounder, as they referred to it. Um, I, I guess to some degree, the next like five pages are just the, our characters getting caught up on chapter one when we found out that the white cloaks were in the two rivers. Um, was there anything about the characters' reactions to that news that stood out to you or surprised you at all? Or was it just kind of exactly how you kind of figured this would happen whenever they found out? I think it's more the latter. I mean, it feels... I, I was thinking of Return of the King, how the hobbits don't really know the Shire's in danger, but you know, that yeah. is such a key part of the hero's journey slash epic hero cycle. Although a lot of films skip that part, but you're yeah. supposed to, at the end, have to battle for the home realm. And so it's like, you know, not necessarily what I expected to do in book four, but it seems like when we have this big a cast, some people can go take care of that yeah. or check in on that problem and see if they can win back that. So um, not that much of a surprise. I found myself getting a little lost and confused i think both between so uh again thinking of lord of the rings i have an ongoing joke with my wife because she has watched all these movies she's read the books cannot tell you which one is Marin and which one is pippin to this day just I doesn't mean, know knows I i'm probably 50 50 <laughs> on that <laughs> and so uh like i feel that way at times about matt and perrin um yeah in that i know perrin is the wolfy one and matt's the one with the dagger and then the luck but it's like, oh, I forget. So Matt had sisters or Perrin had sisters? Matt has sisters. Although it is worth noting, this is the first time that they have been named in the series. Mm. And then neither is married. Correct. Even though the show changes that detail for Accurate. one of them, maybe. I'm trying not to cross streams. So I think that's what got more confusing in my head. So yeah. essentially what you're saying is Matt has people at home that he is care concerned about. Heron just wants to get back because it's his home and we don't 
see him making that specific, right? He also references uh, that since the White Cloaks know his name, that they could potentially come after his family, but he doesn't have like a specific like person that he's looking out for, as opposed to Matt, who seems especially concerned about um, his sisters. Shire Baggins. Shire. Yeah, uh, feels very familiar. Uh, yeah. So, um, so all the way back to your question, Am I that surprised? No. Perrin going off and being wolfy in Two Rivers sounds like a more interesting plot to me. And, you know, then I played the game of, well, what is it that's preventing Matt from going? Is it the other part of Matt that doesn't care about the Two Rivers or is it, um, you know, something else? Yeah, I think that's the the interesting question that we're left with, right? Because there's that visceral moment of Matt literally, like, I think it's like, guh, 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 and you just can't get the O out when he's trying to say he wants to go. Um, I was curious about a particular phrasing by another character in reaction to this news. Rand was overheard to be saying, he said he'd do it, which I'm pretty sure is a reference to way back in the second book when Padden Fane claimed that if Rand didn't arrive in Falm quickly enough, then uh, Padden Fane would go to the two rivers and kind of root out his family. So that I thought was a really interesting kind of throwback that Rand is also feeling kind of caught up because he knows he is at least partially responsible in the same way that Perrin is feeling. was totally distracted that you changed how you pronounce Falme, which means I think we're about to learn something different in the television show. Um, yeah. uh, so uh, um, that I did. I, I mean, I think it goes without saying I didn't remember that Pat and Fane had leveled that threat. But, you know, I think it's interesting that Rand can be concerned, but Rand is so caught up in his destiny prophecy that he's just going to continue doing what he's doing yeah um that's a change in rand who when we met him it was all about his dad right and yeah. saving his dad in those initial chapters so the fact that he's seems to have transformed away from that shepherd version of himself seems significant yeah i have very little else to say about this chapter other than the bear lane section which is just going to be making a me making a bunch of stupid jokes so do you have any last thoughts <laughs> on the important things in this chapter before we get to matt and bear lane the two most vain characters in the series sizing one another up no i think we've covered everything i had here um I mean, again, I think my one underlined point is just Matt seems unable to do what he wants, but I yeah. actually mean each word in that he seems unable, but maybe he's actually doing what he wants. And so, yeah. um, so that to me was, was my keynote. So, uh, yeah. So, Hey, two cocky, attractive people, they should be a couple, right? <laughs> yeah. So legitimately. Every 18-year-old in the world has seen the couple that Matt and, and Berlin would be, right? They they won the the like you know high school king and queen at your homecoming. You witnessed it, right? Most of the time, those 18 or 19-year-olds, one of two things happen, right? Either they get married and sometimes it works out and sometimes it goes horribly wrong. Or they flame out and break up like two months later because they are too similar and they have the same flaws. And that is just a horrible thing that can happen in some relationships. I just need to give Bear Lane credit. We have this entire series kind of treated her as the character who is kind of manipulative and willing to use her sexuality to get her way. But she's also willing to just sit down and go like, no. This is a bad idea. And we need more like 18-year-old girls who are willing to size up the himbo and just go, nah, this is a bad call today. Um, well, I just want to say, I don't think listeners know that you have a secret deep love of uh high school movies, uh while acknowledging at, how bad they are. But if it ends at prom, <laughs> yeah. I love it. That is how my movie dar works. <laughs> Um, which, uh, you know, so yeah, as you're describing all of those, it's like, yeah, that's the, that is the, the plot we've seen before, right? It's, uh, well, I just saw Mean Girls. Uh, when are we recording? Yeah. I don't know. Uh, but you know, Regina George is, is the, the queen of that type. Uh, so, um, really fun, really good kind of, um, almost a game recognized game nod, yeah. but, but the idea that, you know, it's a terrible idea, um, 
is is good. And yeah, I was just going to say my prom king and queen, you would be generous if you said flame out months later. I think it was like that night uh, they I, flamed out. So <laughs> I actually didn't think this was an, a, a real point, but it might be. I want to bring this back very briefly. <laughs> we were talking before about how Elaine felt much more mature, kind of emotionally recognizing other characters. Maybe we just need to recognize that all of the leaders in this world have been well prepared because Bear Lane is also making shockingly mature decisions for a teen or early 20s kind of character. I have very little else to say about these chapters. I think there's some fun, interesting stuff here, but it feels like what we are doing is moving forward to what you described are three chapters next week that feel like they have some forward momentum in the titles. We have chapter 14, Customs of Mayenne, chapter 15, Into the Doorway, and chapter 16, Leave Takings. And I don't want to tell you which of the three chapters this is, but I will let you do the outro, Greg, by noting that one of these three chapters is probably one of the most reread and most analyzed of the chapters in the early section of this series. Mm. So we've got some good stuff coming up. What are you expecting or looking forward to? Uh, sorry, I was Googling the lyrics to One Day More to see if I could do a parody uh, off the top of my head. And we're not going to go there. Uh, but yeah, I I am, as my comment earlier and my Les Mis references uh, note, uh, I am looking forward to this getting in motion. I think um, this is the part I get unpatient, sorry, impatient in when I'm reading any book. It's like, we're about to do something. We're about to do something. Get ready. We're going to do it. And the longer you stretch out that moment, I get frustrated. Yeah. And, you know, I just want to I just want to dive in. So I'm ready to get off adventuring. Uh, that's very intriguing what you said. I, of course, was uh, honed in on uh, leave takings because I'm like, oh, good. We're 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 going yeah. or the the. The characters are leaving, uh, one would seem. So uh, am I right? Am I wrong? Will I ever get to know the meaning of this podcast? Is it next week? Is it one day more? We'll find out sometime soon through the glass columns. So ends another episode of Through the Glass Columns. We thank you for joining us and continuing with us on our quest to cover all of the Wheel of Time in our own sweet time. This podcast features original content developed by Tyler Orm and Greg Cass, and is not in any way affiliated with, associated with, or condoned by the Robert Jordan Estate, Tor Fantasy, or Amazon. All content is intended for entertainment and educational purposes only. If you're enjoying this podcast, please seek out the books from your local bookshop or library and join us as we continue our journey. If you'd like to contact us to share your thoughts or give feedback, you can email us at throughtheglasscolumns at gmail.com or find us on Instagram and Twitter by searching Through the Glass Columns. Thank you once again for being part of this community. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe to the show, leave us a review wherever you're listening, and recommend this show on your social media to help us grow our community. We look forward to welcoming you back next time Through the Glass Columns.